This week at Tequila Sunrise, we're smoking and drinking. Yeah, we're doing our first founder interview and it's a hot one. A cannabis industry supply chain tech leader. I'm taking a step towards the dark side. Yeah, I'll tell you about my newest gig and tell you why. If you're a founder, you might just be as excited as I am. I'm also going to highlight one big mover in the supply chain tech stock index. So listen up. It's time to wake up to Tequila Sunrise, where unfortunately, without the aid of tequila, we open your eyes to how startups and venture investing techs focused on supply chain tech every week this unholy hour of the day. If you want a taste of how tech startup growth and investment is done, join me every Thursday for another blinding tequila sunrise. Greg White here from Supply Chain Now. I am always happy, never satisfied, willing to acknowledge reality, but refusing to be bound by it. My goal is to inform, enlighten, and inspire you in your own supply chain tech journey. Hey, in case you're listening in the Supply Chain Now main channel, you should know you need to subscribe to Tequila Sunrise wherever you get your podcasts. We'll only be in the mainstream for a couple weeks more. Go subscribe to Tequila Sunrise today so you don't miss a thing. Hey, you may have heard me mention Balaji Gopinath at Cupra Venture Capital in Episode 5. Remember Paul Noble, CEO at Verison, introduced us? Balaji and I really hit it off over a couple of cold beers, talking about what we thought could be improved in the investment ecosystem for founders. Balaji shared Kabera's visionary founder-empowering investment philosophy, and I found it a really refreshing approach as a founder. Fast forward a bit, and when Balaji and James McKee and St. Azorlu asked me to join as a venture partner, I had to say yes. So let me tell you why. Kibera invests in early stage companies, seed stage, and A rounds, early company success. We're consultative investors for founders who are reimagining how we work and we live, who are building emerging technologies for future of work, industry 4.0, and now, after a couple of cold beers, supply chain. A lot of founders have reached out to me to share their ideas, their companies, and their woes. And I really look forward to talking to you if you need guidance or if you're considering a fundraise and you're an early stage company, reach out to me directly at greg at kubra.vc. That's K-U-B-E-R-A dot V-C. All right, I'm pretty excited to get you to our guest for this week. But first, let's see what's going on in supply chain tech this week. Hey, money seems to be slowly coming out of hibernation. And let me tell you about one investor, Cambridge Capital, Ben Gordon, who I've mentioned on the show and will be a guest in future weeks, has already made three supply chain deals this year, two in tech, Lift It, which we talked about a few weeks ago, and Bring, that closed in April, on $30 million in funding, somewhere under $500 million in valuation. So there is money in the market. Buck up, little campers. There's a big opportunity out there. All right, let's talk about this week. 264 funding rounds for $7.3 billion, 97 acquisitions for $12.5 billion, and this week I dug into supply chain deals. There were 10 rounds 
for $97.5 million. All right, let's jump to the Tequila Sunrise Supply Chain Tech Stock Index because it is so easy to say. It is easy to say that not much happened this week. Look, nearly every stock is flat to up a little this week. As of Tuesday's close, PTC Park City Group down slightly. SAP is near its 52-week high that it hit on Tuesday. And get this, Big Commerce, new member of the index, jumped $28 when it announced its Instagram integrations to over 104 there are some great and interesting deals happening this week. I'll go into some detail next week, and I'll include them in the show notes at supplychainnowradio.com slash tequila hyphen sunrise. But we have a special episode today, so let's roll right into that and get ready for a little bit of transition from smooth jazz voice to Zoom voice. Hey, it's time to bring in our guest, Colton Griffin, CEO, Flourish, one of the leaders in the cannabis industry. Let me tell you a little bit about Colton. He's a supply chain veteran, graduated magna cum laude with industrial engineering from the University of Tennessee. Get this, has Bechtel, Schlumberger, Genuine Parts, which is Napa, and Manhattan Associates in his experience. And he stumbled into the uh, cannabis industry by pivoting a prior company to create this industry-leading, I would argue, track and trace company. So let me make one full disclosure. I'm really honored to serve on the board of directors of Flourish. So I might be a pretty big fan, but what I'm really excited about is today I get to ask Colton a bunch of questions that I have never really gotten to ask him before as a board member. So before we get started, do you have your shot glass? I do. All right. <laughs> Bottoms up. Okay. Get this thing started. Let's get this this party started. Look, you and I have known each other for a while now, but our listeners don't know you. And on Tequila Sunrise, I want people to get to know you. So tell us a little bit about yourself, your hometown, a little bit about your childhood, and, and maybe what type of kid you were. I have a feeling I know, but... (laughs) <laughs> Love it. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's uh, it's great to be here. So I grew up in rural East Tennessee uh, between Knoxville and Chattanooga and uh, definitely have an appreciation for the outdoors and country life. I actually went to boarding school in Chattanooga and got a scholarship and went there and left home at 14 to go to prep school, which was a world of difference from where I grew up and a great experience. And then I uh, went to the University of Tennessee, studying industrial engineering there. And then wound up in Atlanta at Manhattan to really kick off the career. Any aunts, uncles, grandparents, anybody impart any significant wisdom on you, or was there kind of a pivotal moment when you that you can recall from your childhood? You know, I think I think my parents raised me right. I had I had a good good foundation as far as uh, morals and discipline and hard work. And, uh, and then, you know, when I was, I would say when I was in high school, I had a bunch of really like amazing mentors, a couple, you know, teachers who were just really well educated and had great worldviews. And, you know, I was, uh, I was an Eagle Scout uh, at the end of the day. I went through Boy, wow. uh, Boy Scouts uh, for four years, had a great scout master. We were very active, um, in the camping. I'm, I did something like every month, chalked firewood all winter, raised money. So there was a good number of influencers or one person from before I was in high school, I wrote a bio on had a really kind of successful career, ended up in AT&T, but earlier in his career, he had 
hitchhiked across the country by himself. He grew up in like in the you know poor West Virginia, and then hitchhiked across the country at sixteen. And then you know when I knew him, I used to do a lot of yard work for me, a huge house, and uh, you know had a had a kind of successful career behind him. But it was kind of interesting writing a bio on someone like that, that very background. Interesting. That reminds me of a friend of mine who did a similar thing. He's about six foot seven and he drove a Volkswagen bug across America, kind of doing the same thing, couch hopping and, and then settled down, I guess, sowed his wild oats and settled down and started a business. And he's uber successful now. That's really interesting. I've always told people, I feel like I wasted my youth not getting wasted. Maybe I should have done that more. So, <laughs> well, so, uh, so let me ask you about some of the things you like. You got a favorite topic or are you a fan of anything big? What's your favorite hobby? Uh, you know, I used to be super involved in politics, uh, which was my, my, my sort of passion when I was doing the corporate job at, at GPC. I had a lot more free time than I have now. I've dialed some of that back. Politics is, is even more divisive than it was five years ago or seven years ago. So. Yeah, if that was even possible, right? <laughs> it's, uh, but, you know, I, I, I do love to read and, you know, and love to keep up with you know, how things are made. Uh, it's been kind of neat seeing it from the inside and, and from the out. Had a, a long activist uh, background from when I was probably, I mean, I grew up with the internet, right? So, you know, as soon as I had access to understand what everything was going on in the world, it's like, does no one care about this? Like, I sign all these online petitions. I'm like 13, 14 years old. Uh, you know, like suddenly all that, you know, like the world was, was right there. So that's pretty cool. So that's your, that's your hobby is. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, um, I'm not a sports nut. Uh, not that I don't like going to the games and, and, and having fun. I, I just haven't ever, ever latched on to a specific team. I mean, you know, go balls. I enjoyed football while, uh, yeah. while I was there and it's fun to go back for a game. And, you know, other than that, now it's nice to get away from technology some and just, uh, you know, visit the great outdoors. Uh, during COVID, it's even, that that's all we got. So, right. uh, I've definitely been enjoying some some outdoor activities this uh, this summer and spring. So you're in Cali, right? So you're close to the beach. I'm like uh, beach a block from the beach. I can almost throw the frisbee and hit it. So yeah, uh, trying to trying to learn some surfing, the good uh, biking, running right here. It's um, I'm in Venice, which is a pretty cool town. It's a it's a neat you know on the west side of LA here. Yeah. Have you hit the weights on the beach or did they, I think they took those away, didn't they? The, that's, yeah, all the gyms are closed, um, including <laughs> outdoor gyms. So Muscle that's Beach. Cool. Yeah, that's right. Muscle Beach, Venice. Yeah, that's that's a cool area out there. But you lived in Atlanta before you moved out there, right? So I, yeah. eight good years in Atlanta, um, really loved my time there and uh, a couple good years at at Manhattan, and then a couple of good years at Genuine Parts, uh, building out all their analytics and deploying that across the country. And then, you know, we did some consulting and continue to work with them, you know, past that, past being a full-time employee there. And right. uh, yeah, really love, love Atlanta. It's, I think it's even more on the radar than it was when I first moved there. Uh, but I was a big, big advocate selling, selling it. We still have the office there. It's our official HQ. A lot of our team is, is in Atlanta. Yeah. Nice digs too, by the way. Um, okay, so first gotcha question is, uh, what is your favorite word? Uh, my favorite word? Um, 
my favorite word obviously is flourish. <laughs> wow. Dude, your marketing people have tuned you up, man. That's <laughs> Uh, you know, um, that's a, it's a, it's a hard one, but yeah, I don't know. I've ever thought about that question. <laughs> yeah. That's a toughie, isn't it? If you come back, it's okay. If you come back to it later, okay. Let's flourish too. Um, versus a good one. I, we, I feel like we landed on, uh, on a name that, that spoke a lot about what we, what, what we're trying to observe and, and empower. And, uh, yeah, yeah we, I mean, it, for the cannabis industry, it's a double entendre, right? I mean, <laughs> so I, I love it. Flur- the plants flourish, and the companies flourish. We were we were we were very close to naming the company Leafy, and then we googled it and realized there was already a big company in the space called Leafly, <laughs> which would have been very confusing. And yeah. you know, obviously, we do a lot more than cultivation now than. Uh, then when we, we that was the first product or piece of the product we launched, so I was glad we we landed here. It's much better. Yeah, it's good. Great looking shirt too, by the way. One of my favorites. So thank you for that as well. Breath the brand. <laughs> um, so any aside, so aside from your childhood, maybe at Manhattan, maybe in college, or you know, or whatever. Any mentors or any pivotal moments? I mean anyone who kind of helped you become who you are today or have that sort of epiphanal moment or anything like that? Gosh, it's been like a series uh, of, of good mentors as I transitioned both geographies and, you know, stages in, in, in the career, you know, at, at Manhattan, I think I was like lucky to have management that was pretty uh, supportive and I did a lot of self-study <laughs> and push myself to to learn things like long a little bit past my job role. Um, but you know, our, our uh, my management there and VP there were were supportive of you know doing innovation and you know allowing us to experiment and fail if we needed to, uh, even if we weren't billing the clients for it. So that was that was good. And at GBC, it was a bit more of a an island and a very large corporate enterprise. So um, you know, I had a good manager there who also I think just respected that the work was getting done and, and, you know, was, was, was great to, um, to work with, you know, I think our, our board here has been really impactful, uh, you know, including you and, and Tom and, and Micah have been uh, really, really, you know, I didn't appreciate what a board was until we put it together, um, you know, over a year ago and uh, sounding that off in a structured way has been really, really helpful over the last year and getting some clarity on, on taking this company to the next stage. I think that's really good. That's a really good observation for other founders, right? Is if you construct your board the right way, it's it's as much mentorship as it is guidance and and oversight, right? I mean, it's somebody you can bounce things off of, uh, you know. And I think a lot of people, a lot of founders, I, I know a lot of founders, see it as kind of an obligation, kind of those pain in the asses in suits that you have to report to every month or quarter or whatever. Right. But it's a lot you more started, than that if you construct it right. You started uh, the business to not have a boss and suddenly you realize you have a lot of bosses. Um, so, right. But yeah, no, it's, uh, it's definitely, I think it's a huge advantage if you do it right. Cause you, you know, especially if you, you bring people in that have done, done it or observed it before it's key. It's how we learn. 
It is. And, and, you know, I mean, I think it's a joy for us. You know, Micah's done it. I've done it. Um, you know, and I, I think it's a joy for us to be able to help you get beyond those things. Those dumb things we did, we can, you know, we can hear, we can hear them coming a mile away and help you understand, hey, if you do this, here's the consequence of that or, or here's the upside of that. Or if you do this, do it that way. I think that becomes really powerful. At least I hope it is. Um, but yeah, I, I think if you have... And, and you've done a great job of constructing a board that has knowledge of finance, of supply chain, of the industry, of the big players in the industry. Tom, of course, coming from Oracle. Yeah. And, and you've got a great diversity there, plus a couple of your co-founders on the board with you. So you get a lot of inside and outside purview there. So that's well done from that standpoint. So, um, okay. So I wasn't really sure how to ask this question, but what I've seen with really, really successful founders and people who, particularly people who found and lead companies is often they have a trait you might consider a dysfunction, but somehow they make it work for them. So do you, recognize that? Do you have something you think could be objectively considered a dysfunction, obsessive compulsive or whatever, that you have actually harnessed and used to make you more successful? <laughs> the uh, abilities never turn it off. <laughs> so, um, so you're a workaholic. <laughs> so, uh, which is something I, I worked for like several years to get and keep in balance. But when I look back at, you know, the crazy amount of hours, uh, not just me, but also our co-founders put in, you know, some of the early stages of of this. And we, you know, we kind of, it took us a while to get to where we are now. And we went through sort of a year and sort of a a challenging business relationship and and spun out and spent a year in the wilderness trying to get a our first product launched and learned a ton in that process, yeah. you know, and then, you know, or even our first year with, with flourish year was pretty, you know, like there was a lot of, a lot more reasons why we should have failed than, than not. But, uh, you know, I look back at like, like just like the insane amount of time and, and like, I, I'm very fortunate that I can sit down and like generally stay focused for like hours on end without even looking up and being distracted. It's like the opposite of AD and AD or, uh, ADD, yeah. <laughs> you're like your, and uh, and that's that's always been good. You know, even if there's noise and stuff around, it's just there. So that's um, so once you're dialed in, you are dialed. Usually, yeah. I mean, that's getting in the flow, getting in the in the zone, and then it's just you're just there <laughs> to a fault to some degree. So it has to be balanced out if you want some personal life, uh, which I do have and I'm happy to have. But um, the you know that that. I think from a founder perspective, you have to learn those lessons along the way. Yeah. Well, I can see that you've got, I mean, I can see from observation that you've definitely got the ability to lock in. Um, I mean, I've watched you produce things we've talked about in relatively short order. So I get that. And that's really powerful. I don't know what you call that. I don't know if you call that obsessive compulsive or whatever, but, uh, and by the way, I'd like to float a concept past you. So I think it's incredibly ironic to call it obsessive compulsive disorder when most of the time obsessive compulsiveness is about order. 
Yeah. <laughs> obsessive compulsive order. What do you order. think? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to agree with you on that one. <laughs> yeah. I think also the, uh, the ability to, to have imminent failure, like immediately in front of you, I, I, for sometimes weeks on end and then conveniently just being able to shut that off and ignore it and stay focused on what, what you need to do to get done. It's also, I don't know what, I, I look back sometimes and I'm like, why was I just sitting in my room crying <laughs> at this point? Uh, because it's, you know, it's like, it's like, are you just insane? You have no, no emotion to, you know, to process like how bad that is, but are, you know, like from a, just a risk perspective, but you know, you have to be able to compartmentalize that off, which is, I think a strength. I, I think that, I think that is re- really a strength. It's absolute necessity in my opinion for a founder to do that. I, I think, Look, I think that when we look at society, a lot of the great people had what you could arguably call a dysfunction. But in truth, they turned that dysfunction into something productive. So it just becomes a function at that point. (laughs) So, okay, so you brought it up. So I have to ask. I know it's probably tough right now with what's going on with COVID and everything. But what is what do you do in your personal life? I mean... Tell us, a, tell us a little bit about a, a day in the life outside the office. For outside the office. So uh, getting in some beach time, uh, doing some, some, some very casual bike riding, not a biker. I don't think I can, I'm, I'm not, I don't have spandex on yet. Uh, um, I definitely working in some hikes. I mean, fortunate to have a really good, I think good social like friend group uh, here uh, and around the country. And so, you know, a lot of going to the bars and going out, although none of that is happening anymore. So now right. it's, you know, having people over like maybe out to the beach or, you know, over the house. I mean, I, I try to disconnect in a meaningful way regularly where during the work week is, is pretty focused on work, but, um, the normal stuff just trying to get out. And I mean, hopefully my, my escape from work is more than walking to Starbucks, getting a coffee and back. So right. <laughs> you need a little bit more, more than that. But yeah, you know, I, I enjoy the, I enjoy just hanging out with friends. So are you off when you're off? I mean, you do, do you tune out, dial out for at least a few hours a day or? Uh, I would say a few hours a day. I would say, you know, maybe one to two hours a day. You know, I, I, I really do like getting in the gym. I feel like I, that's a habit I've built more consistently over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Of course, all those are closed as well now. So I've, taking up running, which I don't love, but it is actually, <laughs> the more you do it, the more you learn to love it. Yeah. Um, you know, and when I do take vacation, I, you know, I, I do more, like I move all the apps off the first screen and turn off all the notifications and set that office. And, you know, you can always get That's in touch. Good. You have to, you have to do it at that level of, because otherwise it's constant checking, yeah. constant pinging. So, I mean, I, and I actually try to tell everybody on my team to do something similar if they, they can. You gotta, if you're going to disconnect, you need to disconnect. Really do it. Reset periods are super important, you know, to be focused when you need to be focused. Yeah, you've got to re-energize at some point, right? That's really good. So you turn off notifications and... Move the apps onto different, to the back folder of the phone, the iPhone, yeah. Wow, yeah. that is brilliant. I had not thought of that. Yeah. You know, because your email is right in front of you. Otherwise, you know, it's right. just, you just you, hit it. It's habit. You can't even, 
like, you know, you want to try to even reduce like Facebook use. I experimented like moving Facebook app off the screen and see how if that actually would help me stop, you know, checking, you know, these, these apps because it's just right there. You pick it up all day long and you don't know how many times you like, do you really check your email 500 times a day? Probably. Smite. So. Yeah. I bet there are people who do. I mean, you know, if you follow a Twitter feed, man, you got to wonder what else are some people doing? I don't know how they can do it. Um, I find it really cumbersome to do it. But I'm probably more like you. I'm a very inertial, right? When I'm on, I'm 100% on. When I'm off, I'm more than 100% off, right? So it sounds like you do kind of a similar thing. Not many hours off, but, but if they're good hours off, it's energizing. It counts. And if you love what you're doing, then it's, you know, when you're working, it's not, it's not grueling. So, yeah. 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 So you mentioned a little while back, you mentioned some of the challenges that you had seen and maybe some of the challenges that COVID or that, um, you know, the things in the in, going on in the cannabis industry now. I don't know what, what might have challenged you, but this is a question I've heard asked and I, I love it. So I think people learn a lot when they take someone who's been, when they hear from somebody who's been successful like you and they hear about a moment that, you know, was kind of pivotal for somebody. It was go cry in your room or it was, you know, give up on your goals or it was feel crushed by something that's happened to you. Can you tell us about maybe a moment like that and how you handled that? How did you come through it? Mm-hmm. There's uh, so many. Um, <laughs> really? Right. I mean, like you said, you kind of detach from it. So, I mean, it, arguably some of these could crush a particular person frequently, weekly, daily, even, I don't know. Yeah. You know, like, you, you know, like, well, especially, you know, doing, getting a company launched, like there's, you're just going to hit lots of failures, um, or mistakes and things just like sometimes don't work. And, you know, you have to stay focused on the bigger goal and not let it quite completely consume you. You know, the <laughs> first day of vacation, uh, this year, and uh, at the beginning of the year, um, we uh, we had a big client that we thought was going to turn, and that was going to be really impactful and screw up a lot of projections, a lot of kind of our fundraising story, and it was just like like it probably couldn't have think, thought of. So I couldn't have come up with something that would have been worse for us to to get through. Um, and right around Christmas time, too, right? Yeah, right around just Christmas after, time. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. Like literally the first day I, I plan to take off, I take off like four days, you know, so it's like something that's just, you know, you can set it aside. There's really nothing you can do about it at that point, you know, over the holidays and um, kind of consume you, you know. And so when you, you ultimately, though, we like just put together a, a strategy and then three backup plans, um, made some, some quick decisions, uh, you know, went through think like a really structured campaign that to turn things around, you know, worried that something was going to go off the rails and try to dig deeper and understand really where that was coming from and maybe why we didn't see it in the first place or, you know, what, what was really happening. At the end of the day, it came out like much stronger and we, we, we saved what we needed to save. And we affirmed, you know, I think like a, a, even a better commitment, a better position than we are now and solidified things that maybe, that needed to be discussed and had conveniently been, you know, kicked along and, and not been addressed. And so, um, you know, like there was, there was definitely moments where it was like, 
the oh shit plan was really, really bad <laughs> yeah. and really real. And, you know, I would say probabilities, like if you just had to pick numbers was like that, that was like the 70% like likelihood of, of where it was going. Right. But, uh, you know, uh, that was the pull the ripcord and jump bail. Right. You know, I, and, you know just um, not in that order. <laughs> hopefully not uh yeah so you know um i think that was like a huge challenge you know for us where we you know put a lot of work into something and thought it was all going to fall apart and you know and really turn a lot turn a lot of things upside down you know and and uh, a known risk that you know became realized and then ultimately though uh, was mitigated and, and turned around into something that's actually a lot more positive so uh, I would say that even, you know, if you think you staked everything to one, to one element of the business and, you know, it's so, so core and, you know, it's something you, you, you kind of bust your ass over multiple years to make happen, you know, and you think it's all going to fall apart. It, um, maybe you also need to take some blinders off and realize that what you build is, is bigger than one, one piece of it. And, you know, if you get focused on the fundamentals, you can, you can turn that around and, you know, it works itself out. Is that the big lesson you think? I mean recognize when you've got too many eggs in one basket and exactly you know and also um you can't i think in in relationships internal and external with your customers you can't take things for granted it's important to document over communicate uh it's important to set structure up around that so you know you think about like you know we like we've had you know, one or two like really good people that ultimately left and left for better opportunities. And you think maybe, you know, like those, you put those strategies in, you know, early, you know, that retention starts like way beyond, right, way before, you know, there's a flag or for internal use. And then for customers and, you know, and, and partners and that sort of thing, even if everything's is, is roses and going really well, it doesn't mean you can take those relationships for granted. You still have to, it's constant work to yeah. keep them up. And, uh, diversification is important as well. It's always nice to have those plans ready so that, you know, you can execute them when, when you need to, if you, if you think about in the business, what is the worst thing that could possibly happen and then plan for it, you know, when, and when it does, or if it gets even close to it, it, uh, you'll be ready to, to turn it around. That that's really poignant there. You know, a, a great, a great, um, athletic coach, swim coach, once once said to me, I can tell you with one question who my greats are going to be on my team. And that question is, do you love to win or do you hate to lose? And, and he said, universally, the greats hate to lose. Because with that mindset, you consider what it is that makes you lose and you work hard to eliminate any possibility that you could lose. And by by eliminating the possibilities of losing, you win. And they sort of consider winning the job, these greats, right? And um, recognizing that, knowing what could go wrong, that's a critical thing. And it's really hard to do as a founder, isn't it? I mean, you, you want to think everything is roses and daffodils, right? That it's all going to go so well. Um, but you do have to consider the downside risk. Yeah, that's a great lesson, man. There's a lot of a lot of pieces to making the whole organization work, and you know, early stage or as you're growing larger, I mean, they all have to be there. I mean, you can't function without you know these 
Um, so taking each one and figuring out what would happen if you, if you ripped it out, <laughs> um, and how do you mitigate that is, you know, it's like a constant exercise, you know, and then, yeah, but it's, uh, you, you learn some of those lessons along the way. So, you know, everyone has missteps and things fall through that you thought were, were sure things, but at the end of the day, I mean, you know, like if you got the right team in place and, you know, the right, the right foundation and, uh, it transcends that so you know what i think um this is my observation on that particular topic which we can't go into a lot of detail on but what what i think you've really exhibited here is your uh desire or need or ability to own it even when it's beyond your control because the situation the specific situation that you're talking about there's no way you could have had an impact and the uh, strategic or political uh, conditions that put that situation in play were well beyond even your even your most powerful advocates area of area of influence within that company. So um, I, I appreciate that you own it. I'm going to tell you take it easy on yourself a little bit because maybe there was some aspect of taking the taken the relationship for granted a little bit, but the truth is the pivotal moment was well out of your control. And in the end, it took resolving that particular pivotal condition to, to really save it, to, to save both your customer, I believe, and, and the relationship between Flourish and the customer. So, you know, we work in an emerging industry in a very chaotic landscape where there's a lot of things, you know, in our customer base and in our, in our day to day that are not in our control. And that's both for clients as well as for, for us, right? Like, you know, who knows, you know, our regulatory change happens overnight and then suddenly, you know, people's business models are flipped on their head. Right. right. I mean, so we, uh, I think, you know, we, that's one of the big, things around this industry is like, you have to be, you have to be super, you have to recognize that you have control over things, certain things and then things you don't, you have to just be able to roll with the punches because they're, they're often, uh, I mean, you know, I, like I've had prospects that were ready to sign and the freaking facility burns down the day before, you know, the week before we get the contract executed or, you know, somebody, um, you know, gets raided and something's shut down or, um, you know, the, the permit that, you know, everyone was, was expecting to happen gets, you know, rescheduled for two city council meetings, you know, away because of a, you know, a permit landscaping issue. It's like, you know, or an inspector that needs, you know, something to happen. I mean, there's just like so many things in this industry that, um, you know, or like a business that everyone thought was like, you know, doing well, suddenly completely collapsed because it was all smoke and mirrors at the end of the day. And suddenly it's holding the bag and, <laughs> with you know product or accounts receivable that's like not going to happen i mean it's like just the it's a, it's a very wild west um you know fast moving environment with you know with folks that kind of run the very full spectrum of what you what you can't imagine and uh you know like you have to you have to be very comfortable in that position here you have to be in control even when things are out of control exactly right um, so, uh, so the, this leads me to the, the, you created a beautiful segue because I really have wanted to ask you this: What in 
the name of God ever inspired you to found Flourish? I mean, you had a perfectly good, I think, right? Good business with WM Site, which was the company you kind of pivoted to become Flourish. Mm-hmm. But I know you had kind of a, an interesting experience in that that caused you to do that. So can you share that with us? I mean, why this crazy cannabis industry, right? And why this, you know, this particular angle on it? So, you know, traditional supply chain, the consulting was great, great money. I mean, much better money than some of the cannabis money we make. Um, you know, enterprise IT consulting, this is incredibly lucrative. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we... You know, the whole reason why we we formed WM site like originally was because we kind of got tired of just building the same thing over and over, right? Like reporting, analytics, tied to your warehousing operations or fulfillment. Pretty, I mean, you know, after you've done it for a hundred clients, like it's kind of like, are, do we really need, you know, to start from scratch? Thousand dollars in consulting fees to build the same thing we built for the last five people. Yeah. Um, so, like, we wanted to productize that, but we realized that you know what we were doing was it wasn't a nice to have it was a need to have but it wasn't as execution driven as we wanted so we spent like almost a year trying to get a pilot like fully deployed you know like not just deploying it but just getting it through the hoops and realize this enterprise sales cycle was crazy and you know it just like it was we didn't start this just to like make some software and make some money. We really wanted to actually do something that meant something, right? So like, mm-hmm. you know, like this, this, these tools should actually positively affect people's lives and work. I personally have actually really, like, I think back to when I was actually in high school and had all these like plans around like, wow, hemp is so amazing. You could you can do all these, build these products with it. Like, why is it illegal? Like, why don't we use hemp to make clothing and fiber and, you know, and, and materials and all these like thousand products or, you know, make with it you know, because it has some arbitrary federal classification that, that bars right. it is insane. And so I've always, you know, I've always loved cannabis and always, you know, had a, a social justice bent. So when we really just completely accidentally stumbled into this industry uh, and connected with our, our first client uh, or who became our first client, you know, we had learned lessons about wanting to know. We, we wanted to tackle tackle market. Uh, we had a product that you know was ready to do something with. And we had a team that worked really really well together. We had really good processes in place to get the code built and delivered. And we knew supply chain. And so, like when this when this happened, like we looked at the industry and we we're like, our competitors don't even track non cannabis inventory. So you only track part of the inventory in the inventory management system. <laughs> it, was, it was like almost insane to hear the stories. And, you know, and like it was a couple years in to legalization in Colorado and Washington and Oregon, you know, had already legalized. California was like kind of a year out from full legal program being launched. So in Cal- in LA it was bigger than the entire market. Just LA County was bigger than the entire legal market. Um, you know, it was a year away from opening and you thought, well, damn, is there just like this massive set of business that's going to, you know, un- unlock and the players here, like the, the software is like, it's really kind of terrible. And, you know, like, and, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people don't realize that in certain states, cannabis in Colorado or, or California and Colorado, particularly cannabis has been legal for a decade or more. Yeah. Right. In some form or fashion. And I don't think all of America, certainly not all of our our fellow supply chain professionals recognize that. So there is actually on-premise technology, old on-premise technology 
that's okay. out there. And, you know, and, you know, the point of sale market was really hot because you have to have a point of sale for retail, but upstream is, is harder in manufacturing and distribution and, and cultivation. And, you know, you suddenly you started asking and you found that, you know, you knew a lot of people that were in the industry or knew someone that was in the industry. So we got on the phone with all these, all these folks and started asking them questions about, you know, what they're doing. And software was just like this complete nightmare. Uh, in cannabis, there's a, a state track and trace mandate. So you have to document everything in really, you know, specific ways, you know, on the cultivation process, tagging the plants, tagging the inventory, all gets reported up to the, the state system, the state interface that you deal with provides little to zero business value. Um, it's clunky. It's hard, hard to use. Everyone, you know, like just, it's just forced technology adoption. Everyone hates. Right. Um, and it's consistent. It hasn't really changed, you know, the three, well over three years we've been in the market. So, you know, we, uh, we just said like, well, let's, you know, let's run before we walk. And we worked our code and we started hacking together what ultimately became the platform say hacking together, but because we, you know, we, we, we got out here, we toured a facility or two. Um, you know, we had a, a couple meetings with some guys who walked us through, you know, what, you know, what it meant to grow, like, you know, what the stages of, of, of cultivation, for instance, right. Just all right. generic industry, you know, terms and whatnot. And we kind of just went through it, uh, went for it. And, uh, you know, our first customer, like, went completely dark on us for at least a month, which is totally normal in cannabis. So for people to just like say they're too busy and just not pick up the phone for a month because, you know, <laughs> why not? Um, stuff happens, right? <laughs> stuff happens. And, but, you know, we, we ultimately, we had two customers, one in California and one in Florida, who were kind of, we bounced ideas off both of them, designed this out, and then got it, got it deployed. Um, then we had a third in, in Oregon, all three of these customers looked completely different. They did slightly different stuff. They had different backgrounds, teams, uh, OSPs were slightly different. Uh, but we were really specific. We didn't want to buy, build, you know, something for one person. We needed to build it for the industry. So we really just kind of clung on, and uh, it was a it was an industry we could get behind. You know, we love you know uh, cannabis, both recreational and medical. And you know, and then hemp has quickly fallen. You know, followed that over the last last couple of years. Uh, and it's just, I mean, it's so exciting to be part of actually making this happen. You know, if you're going to do something, if you're going to put in hours, you want it to be meaningful. I mean, not that moving boxes through our house is not meaningful. Um, cause yeah. it always is. I mean, you know, if you're providing tools for people to grow their business, but it's cool to be working with people that are, you know, like they have had a passion for cannabis for all their life. And now we're suddenly able to own and operate a business growing this plant and, you know, getting it, you know, distributed you know, across the state and, you know, and, and executing on it. And, you know, they need these tools to, to run the day to day. And, um, you yeah, know, it, it provides a little bit more meaning than you know, some of the other projects I've done over the years. So there's a couple of dynamics in cannabis that I think it would be interesting for people to understand. One is the strict regulation and tracking of the product. And two, the dynamics of regulation in the industry? I mean, the laws change frequently. So can you share a little bit of that with, with the audience and give them, I mean, just maybe some examples or... Yeah. So we track in cultivation, we track, we tag individual plants as soon as they're kind of large enough to have a tag on them. 
of course, every state has, has decided little nuances that are different. So it's not like we build it once and just deploy it everywhere. We, we flag, turn on and off different flags, you know, where we deploy it. And then we, you know, record any waste off those plants, you know, <laughs> and um, we take the wet. The, in a lot of states, we, the, the, we weigh every single one of those plants and they cut it down. And then it loses 80% approximately of its weight to water. Um, and then we assign, you know, the thin, you know, the, the dried material gets trimmed out and, and it gets put on a, a package that we call, we use the term package ID, uh, license plate number, um, LPN you know, um, unique identifier. And then everything in this, in the supply chain comes from somewhere and goes somewhere. So, um, it's a hundred percent tracked to the barcode that, it, you know, that it's assigned to, and it all has a history and you can go back through the history and look at it. There's like very strict testing requirements. So everything has to be sampled and people spend hundreds of dollars per test, to, to sample, you know, to test things. Um, I mean, like, if your tomatoes were tested to the degree that cannabis are tested, you might not be able to buy all those tomatoes you buy because, um, you know, it's like very, very faint traces of pesticide that maybe weren't even, you know, like weren't even applied to the plant, but like, you know, operators have to be aware of, you know, res- residue maybe in the air around it or what soil they put on their plants that might have something that accidentally got into it because it's tests are very sensitive. And, you know, so, um, you know, the product to get to market has to go through that, that QA step. And then, Yes. Yeah, so the regulatory requirements are like basically an over-engineered SOP for everything you can think of, documentation for everything that happens, like to the nth degree, and then tracking it. And then there's weird and there's costs associated with every one of those transactions. And you know, I've never seen so many people jump backwards to save twenty-five cents. But you know, when it's twenty-five cents a tag, like it is in some states, or forty-five cents a tag, you know, and you're doing thousands, and, you know, a, a a month it starts to add up and it's like yeah. it's like wow you bend over backwards to, to do that or you know you think you have to think about how you separate the inventory because you know if something fails a test which there's legitimate reasons why it could be failed and then you have to retest another you know 500 bucks maybe to send and you know and eating to your margins or you have to destroy something or you only you have to reprocess it in a different way there's just lots and like plus i've heard stories uh, of laws changing in a single state, which by the way, that's another dynamic you probably ought to share yes. with the audience, but laws changing in a single state over a hundred times in a year. And still... Oh, yeah. well, uh, uh, new paperwork you have to sign, different sign-offs, different like, you know, like requirements on, on facility things like camera requirements, security plan requirements. I think in Florida right now, they just like, they gave basically everybody two weeks, I'm going to say two weeks or four weeks, like very short amount of time to say that everything had to have a third party mandated test attached to it. You sold the retail, right? So you're talking, you know, thousands, thousands of, of inventory items across, you know, some people have, you know, some big players have, you know, dozens, dozens of stores that suddenly everything has to have a new label on it. Uh, right and like or like a new SOP has to be you know most designed implemented and deployed in a matter of weeks right and coordinated with third parties and systems and like these changes you know can sometimes happen like that like in that like okay we release guidance and you know now you have to follow this and you have 14 days before it goes into effect you know and like so now we suddenly have to train 200 people how to do something slightly different or the product can't be sold in the market and this, this happens like every state has a different set of rules and then sometimes localities also put additional rules on top of that. And, you know, and basically like, 
the legal industry makes good money in this industry. I'll say that you have to have a good attorney, a good legal team, uh, because you got to interpret it, you know, and like packaging, I never would have thought packaging would be so hard, but like you screw up packaging, it could be a million dollar mistake and sink the whole business. You know, there's no way to read. There's no way to take oil out of a vape cart and put it back into another vape cart once you fill 10,000 of them (laughs) or, you know, re-sticker, you know, thousands of boxes by hand. I mean, you you hear these nightmares of people like, you know, know, something, it's just like all these little details that uh, they have to be, every detail has to be thought of in like a really dedicated way. It's, it's a lot. I mean, the operators, it's a lot it takes to get a product from to market and then keep it in market. Sounds overwhelming. So, you know, I, I know, and, and of course you can't cross state lines because, um, yes. violates federal rules and then you go to prison for the rest of your life and you can't use interstate banking because that is under the purview of the federal government. And then you go to prison. So this has been largely a cash though. It's evolving. It's been largely a cash business. I mean, have you been paid in cash in large sums by customers? Yes, I've handled. I've, I have a, a money counter in the house who um, to you know sometimes count. You know, someone drops off thirty thousand dollars in cash, and you know, like um, yeah. I mean, it's uh, we we fortunately the the customers we work with and most customer most people in the industry are able to get some level of banking. There's just an incredible amount of paperwork that comes that comes with it, and that's just, just changed in the last. Last year or two, you yeah. know, is you know, and it's it's getting better and better. Like, because banks are figuring it's just there's ways to do it. It's just it takes a lot to make make it happen, and you know, there's risk and procedure, and you know, frankly, it has to be worth it for the bank. And the right. fees are crazy, but yeah, credit cards are really non non-existent. There's just it's the one of the biggest and should be most easily solvable solution like problems in this industry is just like the very small legislative changes that we need to make to make banking accessible and right. get billions of dollars in cash out of vaults and, you know, and safes across the country and into the banking systems that people can just transact and send invoices. And, you know, we've, I mean, we've even, we lost one of our benefits companies when we, who gave us, uh, I mean, I, it was like mid payroll and they said, sorry, can't run payroll. Um, you're dropped. Right. You know, and how do you, you know, you're obviously your employees expecting their, Paycheck, um, and suddenly you had to, you know, switch bay- a payroll company, you know, in, in a matter of days. You know, and we're not even a plant fishing company. We have to deal with some of those challenges, but not as much as our customers do. Right. You don't. I mean, you don't handle any of the plants, any of the product at all, right? So, no, no. We don't providing software to those that do. Yeah. So, um, but it's uh, banking is incredibly challenging. And then, if you're a multi-state operator, you know, you're you're operating under a different set of rules in every state you're working on. You know, you can move your hardware and your packaging you know, across state lines, but you can't move any of your product across state lines. And it's, you know, and then even in, even in hemp, some, some, I mean, it's fine to, to do all the commerce, but like some of the major carriers and stuff won't, won't transport it. There's still barriers. It's not frictionless, frictionless. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, and like even, I mean, I, I was at a big hemp customer other week and uh, they do a, they do some parcel like some stuff that's not on a truck or, um, they ship through USPS sometimes and like they said yeah it's it's great it's fine it's legal but then when someone you know doesn't know what it is and then seizes it or holds it for two weeks and it sits there and then gives your customer it's like it's like even if it is completely legal and documented and everything like people still don't even know how to handle it because there's not consistent guidance everywhere yeah. and uh, it's it's 
these are all solvable problems. Hopefully we'll see some of them be solved in the next next year or so. Well, and taxation is burdensome to say the least, right? I mean, to me, it just seems like all these states have made this enormous cash grab. So the S the standard operating procedures and and regulatory compliance is unbelievably burdensome and expensive. Yes. Right? You're you're you don't get um you don't get economies of scale in the supply chain because you're bounded by the state lines. Um and you've got an incredible tax burden. I mean significant, right? I don't know. What is it what is it? I'm gonna, I'm gonna say in like up to forty percent of that sales yeah. price is taxes. I was looking today, um just like I mean, every state has a different tax rate. Sometimes there's local taxes on it, and sometimes there's also upstream taxes that you don't see as a consumer. But I think in Colorado, the tax rate right now is uh, like 20 percent. So, and plus local tax on it sometimes as well. Uh, it's it's a lot. It's crazy. Well, and part of the problem that that produces that I, at least this is my estimation of it is in California. You are probably aware that there are a lot of companies that blur the line or even cross the line back and forth between in compliance being completely legal and completely out of compliance, essentially being old school type drug dealers. So, and a lot of that has to do with this onerous, burdensome regulatory environment and the incredibly onerous taxes. It's, I mean, I'll say this, I built, uh, built some financial models for operators, uh, in the space and uh the the tax implication can turn the business problem uh plan from profitable to not profitable pretty quick yep. there's also um irs regulations around not being able to actually deduct you know most of the the general cost of, of bringing this product to market for your federal taxes as well so like most of the things that you normally would be able to deduct as normal business expenses uh you're not able to deduct, deduct. Yeah on your federal taxes, which is just another, I mean, it's, it's huge. I mean, you know, if you can't deduct your expenses from your revenue and you're paying taxes on, on, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's no wonder it's such a volatile environment. And really the, I mean, the only answer to making it fiscally feasible is, is federal, you know, is a federal law change. Even, even the States, um, need to be tempered, I think, somewhat in their tax and regulatory uh, oversight. I mean, some things are just, it's just insane. It's like, it's like clearly, you know, whoever wrote this doesn't have any idea of of what it looks like in in the physical real world. And on the federal level, I mean, you know, like you're talking, you know, over a quarter million direct jobs. I I think we're, you know, around a half million jobs in, in, in total that are directly, you know, already been created by this industry. And we're like, Wow. It is incredibly early still. Um, you know, you say like, you know, 70, 80% of the, of the cannabis in California is not even in the legal market yet. You know, this isn't slowing down and it's, I think it's just, it's just also solvable. solvable. The legislation is sitting there ready to be voted on. Um, so, I mean, we're talking about weed here. So yeah. this is a fun topic, man. This, I mean, it, this sounds like really burdensome, but I think, a couple, a couple dynamics. One is, I see the cannabis industry as a great model for what is re- necessary in the broader supply chain marketplace because of 
the accountability, the provenance and, and regulatory environment that's required. And technologies like yours and other supply chain technologies, they have to comply with that and they have to account for that. So uh, I can see this being a great model because we can see, especially after COVID, the, the broader, the, the mainstream supply chain going that direction and recognizing the need for that kind of thing. What do you think? Totally. I mean, we can do a recall in like two clicks and figure out where everything went. Wow. I mean, like you think about in agriculture, I mean, what was it? The latest thing they were recalling this, this last week or so was like onions, right? Like dozens of people died because right. onions had salmonella in them, right? And then it takes the process to, to do that recall is, is weeks on end. Uh, if it even actually ever happens by the time, <laughs> by the time you've recalled it, onions are, are not, no longer good. Right. Um, right? Or they've or the already been down, right? The shelf life is already there. Uh, right. And, you know, from a safety perspective, I mean, it's pretty incredible, you know, from a, a visibility perspective, I mean, having, you know, like what other industry people sometimes like have vertical integration to the degree that they produce the raw materials and sell it to the retail consumer, you know, with transformations in between. Um, uh, that's pretty, pretty cool to have, you know, we're doing a big product, a big, um, a lot of work in, in cannabis and in hemp, really connecting farmers with like the, the midstream extractors and distributors and sort of a, uh, we call it like a partner farmer, farmer model where we're bringing some level of light technology into the farms and giving them like direct connective connection to ultimately is how they make money, which is getting their product into, into the market and consolidating that into a single point and then, you know, manufacturer. I think that's really, really impactful and, and powerful and, you know, people talk about like vendor linking and, you know, and having visibility to what, you know, what is coming and, and clear communication and master data, like share between companies. I mean, there's a lot of good models here on how it's working. And there's still a lot of, a lot of things to work through, but it's, uh, there's a lot that that's parallel. Man. So, all right. So we're, we need to shift gears here in a second, but I gotta, I gotta know, tell me something misunderstood or even mythical that people think about the cannabis industry that you know better? Well, listen, two things. One, I think people think that folks are making lots of money. <laughs> that is the case for some people, but like we just talked about all those challenges. There's, it's not, it's a long journey to get there. When you're there, it's there in a big way. But, you know, I think people think that it's like, oh yeah, let's just grow some weed and sell it. Uh, and yeah. like, that, that journey is a lot a lot larger than it is. And I think people have also, the other thing I would say is, you know, I don't know if this is across the board and, you know, being in the industry long enough, like it's not something I think about or hear about that much, but I think people have a perception of, you know, who it is in the industry, running the companies and, and, and putting the capital in and running these operations. And I will say that like, whatever you're, you're envisioning, your, your, what your, your operator looks like, there's probably 20 other personalities that, that look completely opposite that are in the industry. It really is an incredible, diverse like background and, you know, and look and, and culture and, um, you know, uh, sort of makeup of people. I mean, diversity is something that I think the can industry is working on in general, but like it's, yeah. it's everything from folks that have been growing for 30 plus years and, you know, keeping all of us happy with, you know, the, the legacy market, uh, we, to, uh, folks that are, I have like really, you know, corporate backgrounds that just love to operate, love what they're doing. It's, it's like this really diverse, um, set of operators. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, 
what, at MJ BizCon, we had a meeting, uh, a board meeting in Vegas at the same time as MJ BizCon. And I went to that meeting, went to that conference expecting one thing and getting something dramatically different. I mean, there were all the typical things you would expect, right? Um, but there were also my grandmother. <laughs> I mean, yeah. there were ladies who could have been my grandmother there who were clearly, I mean, clearly strong, strongly understanding the marketplace. I mean, they were driving the conversations with, you know, various of the, of the presenters and, and um, you know, booth holders there. So it was, a, it was an awakening. I mean, when you walked in the front of the thing, there was an extractor device that looked like a small factory in, <laughs> in right inside the front door. I mean, I was not expecting that. And it was really interesting to see how there are such a plethora of, of approaches to the market from the very most basic, exactly what you'd expect a guy named Steve and dreadlocks and a, and a, you know, in a tie dyed t-shirt and, and, a guy named Winthorpe in a, you know, in a double breasted <laughs> suit standing next to $62,000 worth of steel. Right. It was just unbelievable. What, what yeah. all there. I think there's lots of, lots of stereotypes to be broken. And, you know, I've also appreciated given that we work <clears throat> really coast to coast, you know, how much like regional and cultural, you know, deepness there is in the industry and passion. And, you know, I, everybody, everybody uses cannabis at some point or another. I mean, not everybody, but more people than they probably admit, uh, even. And it's, um, if you haven't been into a retail store in a, in a legal market, uh, I think you'd be really surprised about how much product diversity there is and quality of product and, right. um, you know, ways like in which you can consume it that, you know, like maybe you should, maybe could replace a lot of the ambient and, and, and pain pills and add, uh, like lots of stuff that, you know, like people, I think are, are starting to incorporate into their day to day. I mean, yeah. I have people like from across the age and income and, and race and, you know, backgrounds, like of all sorts of backgrounds that, I mean, some of them, it's just really amazing to see how much cannabis cuts across every aspect of, of society. So, yeah, I think that that's a really good point. And, and also the uses and the way to, you can administer it. I mean, I think gummies are by far the most popular way to to ingest it. Correct? Ooh, I'm not going to quote myself on a number on cells. I mean, I think I think cells flower, like which is you know um, just bud. I think still tops. Uh, okay. But yeah, there's a whole edible the edibles category in the vape. I don't. Know, there, I have to give bulbs some reports. Um, but yeah, the gummies. I mean, there's some some good gummy companies out there. I mean, yeah. like, you know, there's like inhalers and powders and sublingals and tinctures that you drop on your tongue. And there's even like suppositories and creams, lotions. I mean, it's um, transdermal patches, right. uh, drinks uh, that are infused. It's pretty incredible. And also I would say the other thing is that like if people think they have like cannabis all figured out, uh, I'd say the science is far from that. I mean, the, the, the science behind the plant, the consistency and how it interacts with the human body has been, you know, so limited. Um, there's not federal funding for this, like everything else, right. like how many tens of millions of dollars we, we spend just to grow a better, you know, piece of corn, right. Right. Or like any crop you can think of that has, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars of federal research money 
according to state universities that they, you know, have, you know, entire departments that sit there and study the soybean, you know, production. Right. Um, you know, this has had none of that. And so, you know, the science around what you can do with the plant is, uh, is really, really early. And so, you know, just figuring that out is, I mean, we're still like years away from really getting there. Yeah, I think that, that it's really, I think that's a good observation in terms of the uniquenesses or even the myths around this industry. It's just not what you think it is, right? It's not it's it's like anything you look at from the outside yeah. in, right? Mm-hmm. It looks a lot different. So, all right. So let's, uh, let's shift gears a little bit. So I'd like some of our founders to be able to take away something that, you know, obviously you've given them a ton, but I would love for them to be able to take away some learnings that you've had. So, you know, if there was, if there was anything you know now that you wish you would have known then, what is that? <laughs> Test everything, not just from a product testing, but your ideas. I mean, you know, you can't make assumptions. I, I think, I think, I think if you're doing two things, one, if you focus on, making sure that your team is taken care of and all aligned and two, that you're solving real problems for your customer and not just problems for your customer, but problems your customer is willing to pay for. And that should be something that's like the first thing you test. Like, so basically, you know, every decision you're making, you know, like needs to, I just learned this lesson the hard way. And, you know, which was like, cool, we're solving problems. We know we're solving problems. We know this like fits in. We know this X, Y, Z, you push this button, this happens. But like, is that something someone's willing to pay for? And just because they say they're willing to pay for it, yeah, it's not real until the money is in the bank. So, um, like, that's the, uh, you know, you see, you see, you hear so many awesome ideas, and ideas are, are great. I mean, that's what happens. But until that, until someone's willing to, you know, take some of their hard-earned money and hand it to you uh, in return for using that service or getting that product, I mean, it's it's just an idea. Or it's just a, it's just an, ex, an intellectual exercise <laughs> or uh, a project. So that's that's the biggest thing is that you know um, has to be tied to that. How do you think you get them over? How do you think you get a potential customer from the point of saying they'll pay for it? I mean, do you know what the trigger point is that says, okay, they said they'll pay for it, but I know they will. How so, do you? What have you discovered there? send them that invoice and get it signed. Um, I mean, it really is like, it's, you know, and like even people that are customers, you know, you go through and like, Oh, this and this and this. And then you, but they send the invoice until it goes through their process and it's signed, you know, even if it's like signed contingent on delivering, right. Right. It, you know, until that that's signed and it's, it's and committed, you know, it's just a discussion. You know, I, I, <laughs> Like, I think it's very easy and we still do this. I mean, everybody in business is doing this, right? Like you, you're going to win the skill. They've committed to it. You know, you know, the needs there, like you have a great relationship. It's all there. And then something doesn't happen until it's actually there. It's not there. So if, uh, if you don't have confidence to send someone an invoice for what you're doing, money, if you think about what you're doing, because that's also the thing you have to, it's not comfortable to ask people for money. I don't think a lot of, for some people, some people it is, but you know, you have to be able to talk money at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, it, you gotta, you gotta get there. And that's, I think if you have, if you're not, don't, I didn't come from sales. I have an engineering degree and worked in services. Like it wasn't like I was negotiating contract. Right. I mean, not earlier in my career, you gotta be able to talk money with folks and feel comfortable having the discussion and being like, this is what, you know, you have to advocate for it because they're not going to, they're not going to just what it right. takes. Right. I mean, this is what it takes to get the solution you want. Right. 
Yeah, uh, I, that is really, really good advice because I think a lot of us, myself included, I've fallen for it too. You're very disciplined, right? When you've just been burned or something like that. And you're like, okay, invoice goes out or this contract is signed at least in the terms and a down payment or whatever you want to call it, right? A, an earnest payment or whatever before we do any work. And then there's always that one deal where you go, <laughs> this just feels right. And exactly. almost 100% of the time you are wrong. So yeah, that's, uh, that's a really good point. When somebody is willing to pay for it, it is when they will pay the invoice, right? Uh, almost on spec. I mean, you almost yeah. have to do it that way. And, you know, I mean, you get creative with it, but you gotta, you gotta, you gotta do that early too. I mean, you know, we, you just have to, and it's, you know, does anyone want to spend more money than they have on anything? No, but like, just ultimately in business, then, you know, the value has to be attached to it and you gotta, you gotta have that conversation. Man, that's good advice. And that it's a conversation we all need to have and hear more often. We need to just put this segment on a loop, right? <laughs> no, sure, they want it until they have to pay for it, right? So, <laughs> um, all right. So let me get a little bit more philosophical on you, man. So t- uh, tell me right now kind of what you're, um, you know, what you're really really at peace with or curious or even concerned about just philosophically. It doesn't even have to be with work. So I guess I'd say, I guess I'm at, at peace with sort of my physical health the mental health and balance somehow between That's good in these times, man. Yeah. Which, which uh, you know, is not always the case, but I feel like it's taken a lot of time to get there, but I feel good on a personal level just about where I sit feel really uneasy about where things are headed on a macro level. And, um, you know, just having, I, I have, I have gotten some travel and some little vacations, business development in you know, four or five States over the last seven weeks. And I've seen a lot of small businesses and talked to a lot of folks about it. And, you know, we're in an industry that's is persevering really well through this whole right. situation, but it is insane to see how, decimated small businesses uh, in a lot of a lot of sectors in entertainment, food and services and like how disconnected that is from the market. And like, it's just, it just doesn't, doesn't feel good. So yeah. that combined with is the, concerning. the um, you know, I think we're sort of in the midst of like, I would say a global sort of awakening around, you know, and it's probably because I work in cannabis that we talk about these things, but, you know, around like, uh, you know, awareness and connection and, and you know, being in tune with the environment and, and you know, having, um, I don't know, some like some, some really good understanding of how we all relate, but on the, on the flip side of that, you know, looking at how things travel through social media and like the, just the, the, the misinformation or the deliberate sowing of division in our discourse and like everything, right? Like, like things are not controversial, becoming controversial. Things are like, you know, and, and being totally hijacked by people that are, are in government and, you know, other forces that are stirring the pot. Yeah. Um, and how blind some people are to 
to the fact that it's just happening. I mean, it's just like, I mean, I, I love being connected on social media, but it's, it's scary when you see, you know, people sharing or talking about things that are just so like disconnected from reality and people that just can't even have a conversation about topics because they're so, so divided and about things that are not, I mean, there's, there, there are certain things as facts and we shouldn't, we shouldn't lose sight of that. Yeah. So, that's, I think, what is probably most concerning right now is just, uh, the turmoil we're having. And I don't know, I'll say it, looking for some leadership to actually provide some message to um, that is a message of, of any semblance of unity or vision for a, a society that looks you know, safer and, and more stable and more prosperous. And also in tune with the fact that we're you know, not systematically destroying every ecosystem and natural system in the planet which, you know, like we are, <laughs> whether or not we want to admit it, you can't cut down 96% of the forest and think that it's all healthy. Right. Uh, or dump, you know, millions of pounds of, of garbage into the ocean and think that have an impact or, you know, I mean, it's just, a, it's just insane that we're even discussing rolling back, you know, progress that has been sort of incrementally made across the country and, um, and just conveniently ignoring the, the really in, deep impact we have on, world around us so so is so is there anything we haven't well let me let me start let me go back is there do you see any disconnect because you've been physically traveling the country between what's presented in terms of division in society and what's what you actually see in terms oh, of you get everybody in the room, we're all good. I mean, you don't see people throwing fights and saying things like they do over, or online. You know, I think we just need to pick up the phone and talk to each other a little bit more. It's really easy to lob, you know, comments and questions, you know, from, you know, behind your computer or behind yeah. your phone. But, you know, it's like when people get in the same room, I mean, we're all kind of want the same things out of life and we're, we're not that far off. I mean, you know, it's, and I think that, that's just really important. So I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't think people are going to pick up their, their, you know, their guns and start, you know, attacking each other anytime soon or something like that, you know, but like, clearly there's, there's a lot of things that are really wrong with what's happening in the world. And we saw massive social upright, you know, uh, you know, like demonstrations in every city of any size across the entire country, you know, for, you know, weeks on end, it doesn't just happen out of nowhere. And as a pretty broad-based movement, you know, whether or not you agree on certain solutions of it, you know, it, it doesn't, I think it's pretty broadly, you know, recognize that there's, there's really, there are big problems that need to be solved. A lot of ways to solve them, there's not one silver bullet, um, but, you know, there's a lot, I think we're, I think there's a lot more that unites us than divides us at the end of the day. Awesome. All right. So just one final question. What would you like to share with our audience that maybe I haven't asked you about? we haven't talked about what would i like to share i would say that you know don't be afraid to to dive in and and, and try something new during this pandemic and uh if you have a passion for something you know pursue it i mean we're still you know i think i think you know despite everything that's going on in the world like it's just still a really amazing opportunity you know it's so easy to go and just execute on your dreams right now it's never easy to get there, but it, you know, there's lots of tools and resources and people and capital out there. I still feel like, you know, being in the States, you know, we're in the richest country in the world. There's more capital than people know what to do with. I mean, 
you know, I think that uh, if you want to, if you want to be in the startup world, I mean, call the startup, it recognizes business. It takes a lot of work to make it all happen. Uh, and, you know, and pursue it just because things seem shaky on the, the macro world doesn't mean there's a lot, not lots of problems to be solved, solved still. And there's not resources there to, to do it. Um, in fact, sometimes there's a good opportunity to, to do that reset. That's a really good point. Somebody is making money in every market, regardless of what the macro conditions are, right? Yes. You just got to find a problem that you can solve there. That's that's a good heads up. I think the other thing, you know, I, I, I do this sometimes. I identify people's superpowers. Your superpower is, as kind of what I was talking about before, you like to eliminate every opportunity to lose. You like to, as you said, plan for and understand the worst and figure that could happen and figure out how to manage that. And I think if you want to recognize those dreams, you've got to be realistic and mature enough to do that, to recognize that it won't always be, right? Sunshine. There will be clouds, there will be rain, there will be thunderstorms, there will be a flood, right? There might even be a fire NATO in this day and age, right? And But... But if you understand what those possibilities are and you build contingency plans like you do and you communicate that to your team, that that is a great, uh, you know, that's a, a harbinger of success. It helps boost your ability to recognize your dreams. So I appreciate you sharing all that with us, Colton. Man, that is good stuff. We haven't gotten to have this discussion Um too much. I mean, we've had kind of discussions around this, but we haven't had this concentrated time about kind of what you think and how you've dealt with things and how you deal with them today. So I really appreciate you doing that. Appreciate it. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's not just about one person. It's about the team. I'll say that as well. I guess as a, as a final, final word is uh, you, you know, you can only carry yourself so far, but it is the team that you, you put around yourself that truly gets there at the end of the day. So it, it, we're all dealing with people at the end of the day. So, Amen. Got it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. All right. Big thanks to you, Colton, CEO and co-founder of Flourish Software. My friend, uh, great philosopher, great business person, making things happen. Look, if you can connect with Colton, I'm sure you can connect with him on LinkedIn, right? Mm-hmm. FlourishSoftware.com. Got it. Yeah. Um, reach out. He may not be as active on Twitter. I think we just learned. So, but uh, I still have it. So yeah, finally, okay. I finally flourished on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, and then Colton Griffin on Twitter as well. I'm pretty easy to find if you, if you search. Cool. All right. Thanks. Thanks, man. All right. That's all you need to know about supply chain tech for this week. Don't forget to get to SupplyChainNowRadio.com for more Supply Chain Now series, interviews, and events. And now we have two live streams per week. The most popular live show in Supply Chain, Supply Chain Buzz, every Monday at noon Eastern Time with Scott Luton, the master, and me. Plus, our Thursday live stream, to be named later, where we bring you... eh, whatever the hell we want. Like a few weeks ago when we interviewed our producer Clay, the dog, Phillips. Thanks for spending your valuable time with me and remember, acknowledge reality, but never be bound by it.